Good morning. Today's passage, we're going to be looking in the book of Luke, chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. If you're using a Bible in the pew, you can find that on page 858. Luke, chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And he said, therefore, to the crowd that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? He answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. We are in the New Testament book of Luke, the series in the Gospel of Luke, one of the four gospel accounts. Gospel means good news, and these four gospels are the four historical accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. And Luke's gospel, Luke's account of Jesus' life and ministry can be summarized uh, in this phrase, good news for everyone. That's what we'll see, that's what we've been seeing in, in Luke's gospel, good news. Jesus came to bring good news to everyone, religious and non-religious, to moral and immoral, to Jews and Gentiles. It's really for everyone. 
Today, as we see John the Baptist in his ministry, the, the message this morning is the difficult and liberating duty of repentance. Repentance. Have you ever changed your mind about something? Maybe you had a certain idea or conviction, but upon further study or research, you realized you needed to change your view, needed to change your perspective. Maybe you learned a concept in school you didn't know before, and like, oh, wow, that's enlightening. Or, or you're working on a project at work, and you, and you realize, like, oh, wow, this, that I learned something new, or, uh, and, 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 yet, and it caused you to change your mind or to change how you think about something or, or change how you feel about something. We're going to talk about repentance. It's going to feel a little bit heavy, so let me just start with a, maybe a lighthearted example from my own life of, of how I had to kind of change my mind. And some of you heard this. I, I said it just years ago, but I think it's still okay. Um, when I was a kid, I used to be deathly afraid of roller coasters. Anyone here afraid of roller coasters? Don't be afraid to raise your hand. Okay, good. A couple people honest. Yep. Uh, for some reason, when I was a kid, when I saw roller coasters go down that steep slope and make the loops, right, I literally would shudder in horror. Like, I hated, I, I hated and I still hate the feeling of dropping. Uh, and so I decided when I was pretty young that you would never catch me on a roller coaster, not even if my life depended on it. And so I'd go to amusement parks, and I would ride all the other rides, and I was perfectly content never getting on a roller coaster. And my friends would say, come on, you'll love it, it'll be great, but nope, not me. I made up my mind. In fact, it was kind of like a commandment for me. Thou shalt not ride a roller coaster. From the day that thou shalt ridest, thou shalt surely die. <laughs> and that's how I felt. I mean, I literally, I would look at those things and go, I would die. If I'm on that, I'll die. And my brothers, I have two older brothers, uh, they were the worst about this. They they were much older than me, and I looked up to them, I respected them, I admired them, and they loved roller coasters. And they would go them all the time, and they would try to convince me I needed to try it at least once, but I resisted, and I resisted, and I resisted. But finally, one year on our annual vacation to Ocean City, Maryland, my brothers decided enough was enough. And so we're riding all the rides at the end of the boardwalk, and we're walking by the one roller coaster at the boardwalk in Ocean City, which is appropriately named the Sidewinder. Um, and they grabbed my arm. It's kind of like they planned this out. They grabbed my arm and said, tonight you're getting on a roller coaster, Mark. And I don't remember, I was like seven, eight, nine. I don't remember how old I was, but I, was, I started screaming, no, no, no. And they, they said, they didn't care. They dragged me on. I don't know if I was crying or not. And, and they, they strapped me in, and I thought I was going to pass out. You know how roller coasters have that huge, like, hill to climb, and you hear the click, 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 right? It felt like I was hearing the click, click of my life about to end, like final seconds of my life. All the way up, my brothers are trying to reassure me, look at the, look at the ocean, look at the view of the ocean, Ocean City, isn't it beautiful? I want to like strangle them. But... And then all of a sudden, psst, it go, down goes the roller coaster, up went my, my stomach into my throat. But surprisingly, I loved it. Literally, after the first drop, we're starting going around and around and around the loop. And all of a sudden, I was screaming of horror at first. And then I started screaming for joy. Like, this is amazing. I love this. Keep it going. I had a change of mind and a change of heart. And now I, I enjoy roller coasters. I love roller coasters. Are they still scary? Yes. 
But something changed in me that day. What I thought and what I felt changed after my experience with that roller coaster. Have you ever had a change of mind? Have you ever had to change how you live? That is the essence of what the Bible calls repentance. It's a change of mind, a change of heart, leading to a change of how you live. And my guess is for each of us, there is something that we need to repent of today. And it's probably much more serious than roller coasters. Maybe it's an attitude you have towards someone. A habit or struggle that that you've had for a while. Maybe you're hiding it. A feeling that you can't shake. A belief about life, about others. Maybe even a belief about God. If you will listen to God speak through His Word today, I am confident that He is calling you and will empower you to do the difficult and liberating duty or work of repentance. So let's dig in. Lesson number one. There's three lessons today. Lesson number one, your repentance is made possible by the Word of God. Your repentance is made possible by the Word of God. We're in Luke 3, and we're introduced now to the ministry of John the Baptist. Back in Luke 1, we heard from the angel Gabriel about this miracle child that would be born to Zechariah and Elizabeth, and, and, and the angel said this of John, that he would turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Notice right there in the very beginning, even before he's born, we get this sense of his mission. He's going to turn many. That's repentance. His main ministry is one of getting people to turn, turn back to the Lord, to prepare the way for the Lord. And after this exciting um, announcement of his birth and all these miracles surrounding his birth, then there's radio silence for 30 years. We don't know anything about John. We don't hear much. We learn from the other gospel writers that he's kind of strange. He wears camel skins. He eats locusts, which are like grasshoppers. That's really weird, even back then. And he lived in the wilderness. And now, all of a sudden, John enters the scene to fulfill his destiny of being the prophet who prepares the way for Jesus, the Messiah. And Luke, notice how he begins this chapter by giving us the historical context for which John enters. And he gives the date in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And then he lists all the guys that we can't, we don't don't even know how to pronounce their names, right? So what is going on here? He names five religious, uh, sorry, five Roman officials and two religious leaders. A couple things. First, Luke's point is to make clear that the events that he is detailing really happened. This isn't a fairy tale. This isn't made up. Some of you students are going to go off to college and you're going to have professors who can't wait to tell you why this is a load of junk. Why it's made up. Why you can't believe it. Why it was written hundreds of years later. No, that's not how, this is not how you write a fairy tale in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar who actually existed and we have records of his existence. But there's something deeper going on here. Luke is mentioning these guys who were the movers and shakers of his day. Those who had power and authority and influence. And these are messed up guys. 
These are evil dudes. In fact, these are going to be the very men who will be responsible for the death of John and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, in the midst of power and authority and influence and prestige, he says, in the midst of all that, verse 2, verse 3, then John, this obscure preacher, is the one who comes along and he speaks with even greater authority and, and, and greater moral authority than all these other leaders and rulers. Why? Verse 2, because the word of the Lord came to John. You see that? These guys, you don't even know who these guys are. They're a blip in human history. And yet John the Baptist literally shaped human history forever. Why? Because the word of the Lord came to John, not these guys. That is the beauty and power of God's word, that in the midst of the darkness in this time, in the midst of the darkness in our time, in the midst of the confusion in this time, and in the midst of the confusion of our time, God's word shines the light to show us the way back to God. God does not leave us in the dark. God shows us back to God. And he uses his word to do that. Look, politics can't bring us back to God. Sports can't bring us back to God. The arts can't bring us back to God. Those are wonderful things and they have the place, but they do not have the power or authority to bring you and I back to God. Only the word of God can do that. That is why it says in Hebrews 4, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of the joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is so powerful, it can expose our hearts, it can show us what's in there, but it doesn't just leave us there. It changes us from the inside out. And that was John's mission all along, to proclaim God's word to people who needed that kind of change. People just like you and I. So before we get to the next point, are you open to God's word changing you today? Are you receptive to how God wants to use his word to convict your heart, to challenge your life, and ultimately to change how you live? That's its purpose. That's its mission. That's why the word of the Lord came to John, and that's why it comes to us. Lesson number two. You must repent to experience God's salvation. Verse 3 says, John went all around proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance, what does that mean? It's twofold. It's twofold. Here's what repentance is. I meant to put this on the, on the screen, but I didn't. Here's what repentance is. Repentance is turning away from sin and turning to the Lord in obedience. You can write that down. Repentance is turning away from sin and turning to the Lord in obedience. Repentance is turning, turn, it's the turning of your, the affections of your heart and it's a turning in the, of the direction of your life so that your life is more God-centered and not self-centered. 
So by preaching a message of repentance, what John's ministry is, it's a ministry of preparation. He's calling people to prepare for the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Savior, and the preparation that needed for that is to turn from their sin. And that's why Luke quotes the prophet Isaiah that foretells of of this forerunner to the Messiah. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Luke makes it clear, John is the fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah. John is that forerunner. John's mission was to prepare people to be receptive to the ministry of Jesus. Here's what I mean. Jesus is going to come. He's already alive. He's just about to enter public ministry. That's next week's message. He's about to enter the scene publicly, and he's going to come, and he's going to say, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Same message. In other words, here's the kingdom of God. It's right in front of you. It's right among you. And he's going to live the perfect life, die on the cross for our sins, and rise from the dead. And he's going to say, the only way you can be forgiven of God is by trusting in what Jesus did. What would be the, only, the one thing, the main thing that would prevent the world from receiving that message? Here's the one thing. Here's the main thing that would prevent people from receiving that. It's this. It's not fully appreciating how sinful they were and how desperately they needed forgiveness. That's why John has a ministry of preparation. You can't be forgiven if you aren't convinced you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And repentance is your recognition of that sin and your need for forgiveness. And that's why John's ministry was focused, a laser focus on repentance to prepare people to, to, to kind of, to take a farming metaphor, to till the soil, right? If the soil's hard, you can't put a seed in, but you till the soil, you get the nutrients in, you get it ready so that when the seed comes in, when the seed of the gospel comes in, it can receive that and it can ultimately sprout up and bear fruit. That's what John is doing. He's tilling. He's breaking up the hard ground. He's getting hearts ready to hear you have sin and you need forgiveness and that's the only guy who can forgive you. And so he's preparing the way. He's leveling the the field. The the hills he's tearing down and the the divots he's filling in to get ready for Jesus. Look, back in ancient times, um, it was a custom that when a great ruler would come into a city, the people of that city ahead of time would construct a smooth, broad road so that when the ruler came in, he wouldn't have to go with a crown on his head and like, oh, look at that guy. Oh, he's falling off. No, you make it smooth, right? So that he comes in with great pomp and dignity. Like, whoa, look at that guy. He's amazing. That's the imagery here that Isaiah gives us. John was the one called to construct a smooth road for the greatest ruler in history to enter the scene and receive all the honor that he deserves. But don't miss this. John wasn't building a physical road. John was preparing a spiritual highway of repentance. You see, repentance tears down hills. Hills that would prevent us from receiving the message of Jesus. Repentance fills in the dips, the things that would cause us to fall off a cliff and, 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 and get turned around spiritually. Repentance a lot fills that in, and, and repentance removes all obstacles so that Christ may have full access to our hearts. 
Repentance is meant to invite the fullness of God into our hearts. Is that how you understand repentance? That it's, it's opening up our hearts to allow the fullness of God to do His work in our hearts? That's why repentance is necessary to experience salvation. John was calling people to admit their sin, turn from their sin, and follow God's ways. And then he calls them to get baptized publicly to demonstrate the seriousness of that commitment. It was an outward symbol of an inward change. Why would he call them to get baptized though? Why this particular ritual? Here's why. Jews... In Judaism, there are certain ritual cleansings, various cleansings. But there was really only one main purpose of baptism, right? John taking people all the way into the water and all the way back up. There's only one main purpose for that in Judaism at the time. And that was, it was a symbolic rite that if you're a Gentile and you convert to Judaism, then you as a Gentile have to get baptized to show you have now converted to become a Jew. Can you see how offensive this would have been for Jews at this time to be called by John to get baptized? John was calling Jews to an act that was reserved for unclean Gentiles, which, means, which meant it was incredibly humbling for them to do that. For any Jew to accept John's baptism was a sure sign that they have humbled themselves internally if they are willing to humble themselves externally by doing this very thing meant only for Gentiles. And John was saying, this will show, have you, really, have you really humbled yourself? Have you really turned from your sin? And are you really inviting God to let you follow him? Just so we're clear, the baptism in water didn't bring God's forgiveness of sin. It was their repentance from sin and turning to God that paved the way for God's forgiveness. And that forgiveness, don't miss this, and that forgiveness would come through faith in, in Jesus. That's why he's preparing the way. It would be Jesus who comes along and then John says, I'm not the Christ, he's the Christ. I'm baptizing you with water, he says later in verse 16, but he baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. He gives you eternal life. John is pre preparing all people, Jews and Gentiles, to admit their cultural and religious background has nothing to do with earning a right standing before God. Look at verse 8 again. He said, don't say we have Abraham as our father. Your, your religious heritage, your cultural heritage, doesn't pave the way for you to become a Christian. Conversely, it also means that there's nothing that can prevent you from a right standing with God. You can be a tax collector. I mean, seriously, you can work for the IRS and still be a Christian. <laughs> Praise God. I, we have IRS workers here, so I know that. And, and we love them, kind of. No, we love them, we love them. But look, tax collectors back then were way worse. And John is saying, even you can repent and believe soldiers are coming. Even you soldiers, Roman soldiers, can believe. Look, just because you grew up in a Christian home doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you go to a church doesn't make you a Christian. 
Just because you follow the Ten Commandments or, or obey the golden rule that doesn't make you a Christian, God, John makes it clear for them and for us, your background, your moral pedigree, your connections or whatever, it doesn't change your standing before God. As Paul says, we are all dead in our trespasses and sin. What changes our standing with God is repenting of our sin and trusting in Jesus. Admitting our sin and our need for a Savior. And that's why verse 6 says John's ultimate mission was not just to proclaim a message of repentance, it was to help people see that all flesh see the salvation of God. That's his mission. That's Jesus. Have you repented and trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do you need to do that even right now? You must repent to experience God's salvation. Lesson number three. Your repentance starts in the heart and it leads to outward change. Martin Luther said when he nailed those 95 theses on the wall in Wittenberg, he said that when Jesus Christ called us to repent, he meant that the entire Christian life is meant to be one of repentance. So I'm talking even to Christians now. Repentance starts in the heart and leads to outward change. Verse 7. These are the first recorded words of John's public ministry. And they're very heavy-handed. They're blunt. They're in your face. You brood of vipers. That's not a compliment, in case you didn't know that. Wait, aren't preachers supposed to say only things that make us feel good? Aren't preachers supposed to leave us inspired? Sometimes, I hope, yes, but certainly not all the time. God calls preachers to proclaim the word of God, and that often means confronting our idols, our false gods. Now, that doesn't always feel good. And John could tell from the large crowds that had gathered to hear him that many were not taking his message to heart. Many of them were there for a show. Many were there to see who's this wild guy in, in camel's hair and he's doing this weird thing in water. I want to see him eat a locust. I've been betting people. Well, Willie, do, do, do you see the thing squirt out when he eats it or not? Like, what is it like? John was this strange act out in the wilderness that people came out to see and be entertained. Unfortunately, that's how many people view church today. People come for a show. They want fantastic music. They want an inspiring sermon. They want a great performance. Is that why you come to church? John was having none of that. And so he preaches a fiery sermon. He calls them a brood of vipers. Anyone listening would have known what he meant. Genesis 3, the devil is depicted as a snake, right? By calling them a brood of vipers, John is basically saying, you are sons of the devil. The evil inside you has its origin in Satan himself. Ouch. Ouch. And then John warns them of judgment. He says, who warned you of the wrath to come? He tells them there is judgment coming. 
Look, Jesus came first to be our suffering Savior. He lived just like one of us, endured what we endured, suffered like us, became our substitute on the cross. He, he took all of God's wrath against our sin, all the wrath that we deserved, and then he rose from the dead to prove his power over sin and death. And Jesus is coming back again to bring judgment. Please hear me. Either you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus now as Savior, or one day you will face the wrath of God for your sin for all of eternity. And that's not unjust, it's perfectly just. Jesus came first as a lamb, and then one day he's coming as a lion. Who warned you to flee the wrath to come? He reminds them of judgment, but then he gives them hope that it is possible to escape that wrath, that judgment. You see, when God forgives sins, he removes his wrath from us. There is no fear of condemnation or judgment for those whose sins are forgiven. Amen? There is, for those of us who are in Christ, who have trusted in Jesus, the wrath we deserved, instead of that, we get honor. We get glory, we get beauty, we get forgiveness. And so John's primary admonition to the people is, look, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Turn in your heart, but it's got to do something in your life. What does that mean? What does it look like to bear fruit in keeping repentance? First, let me do things. First, repentance starts in the heart. We talked a few weeks ago about the sting of repentance. Repentance, as Hebrews 4 pictures it, it's like a sword that pierces our soul. The Word of God pierces our soul. It exposes our sin. And the truth is, exposing our sin hurts. We don't like that. Repentance hurts. I quoted Tim Keller who said, repentance is like an antiseptic. You put it on the wound and it hurts at first, but then it heals. Or it's like the cutting of a surgeon. It's painful. Man, is it painful at first, but it leads to healing. What sin are you struggling with today? John gets very specific with the people about their sin and how to repent from sin. Very specific. Do this, don't do that. Here's your struggle. Here's how you show you have repented, that you're turning from that. What are you struggling with today? Well, can you identify the sin? Are you tempted regularly to grumble and complain? The Israelites lost, lost the promised land, that whole generation, because of that sin. It's not an in, insignificant sin. Are you overly critical of others? Can you not wait to complain about something at church or something in your spouse or your kids or your in-laws? Is that just kind of, just, you just think, I, I have to speak my mind. Yeah, it's sin. Are you struggling to give your best at work or school? Just doing the bare minimum? Are you tempted to pride? Thinking you're always right, you're the best? Are you tempted to deception, trying to shade the truth? Has someone hurt you and you're still keeping them in your debt? Refusing to forgive? Saying you are but not in your heart? Do you struggle with gluttony? Bitterness? Sinful anger? What sin are you struggling with? Can you identify it? And, 
And then the next question is, have you repented of it? Are you actively repenting of it? Have you admitted the wrongness of it? Some of you have, have a, and you think it's just a part of your personality, you think it's just kind of how you're wired, but no, you're just self-justifying, you're minimizing, you're coming all, with all kinds of excuses because you're not ready to change. More than the sin itself, have you repented of the sin beneath the sin? Have you, can you look it in the mirror spiritually and admit Good grief, my heart is more sinful than I am even aware of in this moment. I think we need to be honest with ourselves of what prevents us from repenting. A number of things. I think the biggest one is often our focus is on other people's sin. We're so fixated on the sin of others around us that we don't see our own sin. I can tell you of the sin of the people around me. I can tell you I can rattle them off. What about my sin? Well, I mean, it's kind of like this. I know sometimes, but for her, for him, I know exactly what they're dealing with. I know all of Pastor Brady's sins, right? (laughs) No, I'm kidding. I don't know all of them. But he knows mine, right? We're so focused on other people's sins that we, 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 we 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 get distracted. We're blinded to our own sins. Sometimes it's not that, though. Sometimes it's the wounds we have received from other people's sin against us. We can be so hurt by the sin of others that we can't seem to focus on our own sin. Years ago, John Piper said something. This came to me. I wrote it down and I put it on my desk and years later, I'm like, oh my goodness. Marriages fail because of how right it feels to justify sinful responses to sin. Or maybe your sin is so shameful that you're afraid of exposing your sin because you would be crushed if it were found out. No matter what may be keeping you from repenting today, I can assure you that while it might sting now, forgiveness and healing are possible. Because that's the beauty of grace. That's the beauty of the gospel. And by the way, John is described in verse 18 as preaching good news to the people. This is not just heavy news. This is not just, oh man, this is cutting me open. No, it's good news. Why? Because it's precisely where your sin has been shown to be the ugliness, the ugliness that it is, that that has the potential for God's grace to come in and shine the brightest. That's why uh, Paul will say that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Is repentance difficult and painful? Yes. It's a surgeon's cut. But please hear me. It always leads to healing. It always leads to a deeper awareness of God's unfailing love for you. That healing may come soon or it may take a long time, but it will come. Corey Tim Boom, one of my heroes, famously said, There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. Repentance starts in the heart. It's a sting that leads to healing, but then it leads to an outward change, which is another sting, because it's the sting leading to growth. What do I mean? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance leads to action. It's the sting of obedience. There will be many times as a Christian where you will have a decision to make, It may even seem like you're at a crossroad in that decision. 
And these might be little things on a daily basis, or they might be big things. But, but, but uh, there's a, the Christian life will feel like crossroads all the time. One, one road will lead to temporary comfort, and it'll feel safer. The other road is the road of obedience. And you know, if you take that road, it will cost you something. God may be calling you to share your money or your resources, just like John told these tax collectors, what should we do? Guys, you got more than enough. You should be sharing with people who don't have enough. Like very specific. That might be what it looks like for you to, 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 to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Use your stuff and your money to show that God is your greatest treasure, not your money. That might be how he wants you to, 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 to it'll cost you something. Or verse 14, he tells the soldiers, and be content with your wages. Whoa, that's really specific. That's really specific. Church, be content with your wages. Isn't that convicting? How many of us here grumble all the time about our wages? What is the sting of obedience for you? It might cost you your, your reputation to do what is right. It might, you might lose a relationship. That, that is an unhealthy relationship. You might have to forgive that person for the 77th time. And it hurts so bad. And you can choose to obey God's word or you can choose a different road. And John, John's message to us is, will we walk the walk or will we just talk the talk? Do we like saying we're Christians or do we live as Christians? Are you willing to endure the sting of obedience? And that road may be more painful now, but again, in the end, it leads to life and peace and even joy. How do I know that? How can I even say that? Just look at Jesus. Look what he did for you. He had no sin of his own. He had nothing that he needed to repent of. He was the perfect son of God. And yet at every turn, what's he doing? He's walking the path of obedience. He's feeling the sting of obedience. The road was costly for Jesus. In fact, it was a road that led him to be nailed to the cross. He lived the life you and I should have lived but couldn't because we have sin. He lived the perfect life. And then he died the most unjust death, the most unfair ending of a life ever lived. But he died the death we should have died, bearing all of God's just punishment against our sin. He took the sting of our unrepentance and the sting of our disobedience. I mean, let's just face it. We are all a brood of vipers in need of salvation. He felt the wrath that you and I deserved so much that he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was judged for you. He took the shame for you and me. Do you see the immeasurable cost of your forgiveness? But not only that, do you feel the liberation of knowing that your sin is paid for by a Savior who loves you? We sang hallelujah for the one who fought the battle. Love has won and death has lost. That's good news. 
And now by turning from our sin and trusting in Jesus as Savior, we receive the Holy Spirit, the very life of Jesus living in you, living through you. The power that rose Christ from the dead is living in you. And knowing that, knowing that, can you see how Jesus empowers you to do the difficult work of repentance? Is it hard? Yes. But is it also liberating? Yes. Because the more you repent, the more you turn, the more you invite God's, God's grace into your heart. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want more of God's grace? He's ready to give it beyond measure, he says. You were adopted into his family. Nothing can separate you from his love. Not past sin, not current sin struggles, not future whatever, not trials, no whatever. Nothing. Nothing. That's liberating because it means you don't have to hide from Jesus. You never have to make excuses. You can admit your sin to the one who loves you and gave himself for you. You can, you can repent because he is the one who promised to lead you and provide for you every step of the way until he leads you home. You see, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, 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 it's coming. I'm not making it up. I'm not just trying to boost your ego. Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You can, we can engage in the difficult yet liberating, beautiful work of repentance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, sometimes your word comes in and offers comfort. Sometimes your word comes in and, and just lifts us up to the highest peaks. And then sometimes your word comes in and it cuts us really deep. Lord, I admit, we, we confess we don't like how that feels. It would be easier for me as a preacher to preach on, to pick and choose, to pick the good things, the beautiful things, so that I can just smile and tell people that they can have the best life tomorrow, today. But Lord, I thank you that your word is our authority. I thank you that your word promises life, freedom. I thank you that your word does what nothing and no one else can do, because it leads us to, to, into your very throne, your very presence, where we find that you both judge sin and rescue us sinners. We thank you for the cross. I thank you for the empty tomb. We pray now that as we enter the Lord's table, as we enter in communion together, Lord, that as believers, this would encourage our hearts that maybe even in this act, we would experience some level of healing, some level of hope. And I pray for those who may not know you, who may be wrestling, maybe some who want to know you personally, that this would be the moment, that this would be the time where they open their heart up for the first time and receive Jesus as their Savior, to receive the healing 
and the transformation and the forgiveness and the life that comes through Christ alone. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.